The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. So welcome to everybody uh, for this session with Angel and I, and we really do hope that uh, this session together can be a genuine conversation. Uh, one, of the, one of the great values of coming to a conference is bringing together teachers from different schools all over the country, each of whom have different questions, each of whom have a slightly different approach, but all of whom bring a kind of wealth of experience. And so lots of times at these conferences, you'll know it's just a lot of sharing and stealing. Uh, what do you do? What do you do? And that's uh, what we hope to do a little bit of uh, this morning. So I'll kind of set up the conversation and hopefully try to articulate um, the problem or the question that some of us have. And then Angel and I will uh, chat about it um, for a bit, and then we'll open it up to uh, hear from everybody else, and not just your questions, but also your your thoughts and maybe your practices at your school that relate to this uh, this important topic. So here's here's the question, the kind of the struggle that some of us feel who are in uh, classical schools or or run classical programs like I do at, at a university. So. The great classical tradition that we uh, are a part of and want to perpetuate, it starts from these three great Mediterranean cultures, right? Greece, uh, Greek culture, Roman culture, and the Christian culture. And in many ways can be narrated as the reception history of the Greek and Roman tradition by the Christian tradition. So this gets passed down uh, and forms this great conversation of authors speaking to each other across space and time. And as this, as the church moves out, this, this conversation moves out. Now, many other cultures existed, obviously, at the same time as Greece and Rome did and as the early church did, but a lot of them weren't participating in this great conversation, either because they didn't know it was happening or because they were oral cultures and they didn't write stuff down. There were storytellers and civilizations, but they didn't leave us any record. And so they didn't participate in this conversation and it doesn't come down to us uh, in written text. Now, as the church moved north and west, partly because of the Sahara Desert to the south and partly become because of the rise of Islam to the east, uh, this conversation became a little more, if you will, it, it, it took place really on uh, the continent of Europe more than anywhere else. And it bequeathed to us this collection of great texts, or as we refer to it now, um, after Mortimer Adler and others, great books. Right, so that's the, our contemporary kind of mindset for our classical schools. And we want to help our students enter that conversation. We want to try to animate that conversation because, as I tell my students, we have to animate it. It's only animated in us because these books aren't talking to each other on their own. 
So we want them to read these texts. We want them to engage uh, these texts as works of beauty, as works of depth. And oftentimes, because our students won't engage these texts on their own, and in most cases need help reading these texts, fine. Here's the tension that a lot of us feel. There seem to be a lot of pressing questions, contemporary questions, that maybe our texts don't answer uh, or don't address. And there are a lot of authors, um, probably from the last 150, 200 years, whose backgrounds aren't reflected in this great tradition, uh, who aren't reflected in this great conversation, because in a way they've come on the scene late in the conversation. So the question for educators, classical educators, is okay, given that we have limited time in our curriculum and given that we feel the need to take our students through these great books so they're classically educated, how do we ever make space for some of these newer and contemporary voices in our curriculum? How would we ever have time to work them in and where do we work them in? Um, and do we do that? And if we try to do that, do we risk failing to educate our students classically? So th that's the tension, I, I, I think. And we feel that in my program at Eastern, and I know a lot of people do in their schools. So, Angel, let me, let me, let me pitch it to you then. Um, what do we do with that tension that we feel? And is that the best way to articulate it? Yeah. No, I think that's a good question. And I think a lot of it has to do with our approach to it and our philosophy as to why we're doing it. Um, so if we're thinking of this um, along the lines of great books and our focus is really, you know, we want them to read these books because they express, you know, what's true, good and beautiful. And they've wrestled with these deep questions, but we're focused mainly on getting through the books themselves. I think there, there, there's a kind of, slightly different vantage point from which to see it. It's not that they're completely different aims, but maybe different vantage points from which to see what we're ultimately trying to do. Um, if we're trying to pursue the true, the good, and the beautiful, and we're trying to wrestle with these deep questions, what does it mean to be human? What is freedom? Um, those kinds of questions, what does it mean to be a citizen? Um, and so on. Then I don't think we can adequately deal with those questions or those transcendentals without bringing in others who have also been part of this conversation, albeit maybe it's only starting around the 18th century or so. Um, and in my case, I focus mainly on the Black intellectual tradition, so I'm thinking of those writers. Of course, you could have a discussion of um, Eastern writers as well. Um, but my focus has been mainly on Black intellectuals. And in that particular case, you're getting some of these writings um, engaging the conversation really more in the 18th century um, on. So um, if we're really concerned with you know, the nature of freedom, what it means to be human, the nature of citizenship, um, revolution and when is revolution warranted? <laughs> you know, all of those kinds of questions. Um, it's hard for me to see how we can really understand them without reading some of these black intellectuals. Now, if you're doing a purely chronological approach, I think that's where it becomes difficult. And I don't, you know, I don't have the insight into 
all the different classical schools that are represented here and the particular ways that they do this. So, you know, I, I can't speak to everyone's perspective on it. Uh, but when I am addressing these issues, I usually think more thematically. And so in thinking thematically, then I am literally putting text into conversation with each other. And I have found this to be an incredibly um, rich way of dealing with questions. And so this is also partly where, you know, if we're thinking in terms of a great conversation, then literally putting the text into conversation is a very helpful way to do this. So for instance, I've been leading um, a couple of groups on the Black intellectual tradition in the Great Conversation. And the course, the kind of the seminar outline that I put together puts text into dialogue. So for example, um, when we were reading about, um, we have two sessions on liberty, humanity, and slavery. And our first session, we read um, sections from Locke's Second Treatise of Government. And then we also read excerpts from the interesting narrative and of the life of Olauda Equiano, who was um, a man who had been kidnapped from Africa, was subsequently enslaved, um, purchased his own freedom, and so on. Now you might think Locke and Equiano, like what? How how do those fit together? They actually fit together incredibly well. Um, you know, so we Locke engages in this really in depth and very interesting discussion of under what circumstances is slavery warranted, right? And by the time he finishes, there's almost no condition unless you had been egregiously wronged by a person um, to the point where they should rightfully forfeit their life for what they have done to you. But rather than taking their life, you make them your slave. Hey, it's a very, very narrow situation. But then you would have no right to enslave their children, you know. And then there's even a consideration of that person, what's going to happen to their family if you enslave them? Because you have to be concerned about the children that that person has. He talks about an aggressor. So if, if there is an aggressor who is invading your land... Um, and the, you know, say the aggressor takes over somehow, they still don't have the right to enslave the people because the people didn't do anything to them, right? You know, you, you just came in and you, you took over this land, but you have no right to then enslave the people, let alone their children. So he goes into this whole, you know, kind of very um, intricate discussion of this idea of slavery and enslavement and when would it be warranted? And it, it turns out that it's warranted almost never in, in very tiny, minuscule set of circumstances. Um, so we talk about that. But what's also interesting is in Olauda Equiano's um, autobiography, when he talks about, so he he's really unique. So he's an 18th century writer and he's really wonderful to read. I would say he's a little hard going on the, <laughs> just the, 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 the way the writing is, I'm reading it with my daughters now. Um, so we homeschool and um, we are reading the story of the world um, for the modern world. And then we're reading that together with um, Equiano's narrative. And then we've got, you know, other things we'll be reading. 
But, um, you know, they kind of say, mom, you know, this is great stories, but this language, you know, like it's just a lot to get through this language. Um, so I would say just in, you know, in terms of whatever age you're working with, you, if you were working with lower grades, then I would read it aloud. Um, but if you're at high school, they should probably struggle through it on their own. Um, however, um, so he talks about before he left Africa and he gives this really wonderful overview of the culture there, what life was like, what the people were like. Um, from the perspective of an African person. And then as he's talking about it, he also, so he came from a very well-off family that had slaves, right? So you get this very interesting situation before he's kidnapped. He has slaves, his household has slaves. Um, and then he kind of mentions, you could see that um, there was something in the periphery where he would see these um, slave caravans going by and he saw these big bags and he wondered, you know, what, what is going on with that? And then also they were aware that there were um, kidnappers who were going up and down the coast and trying to find people because they would have these, um, you kind of these, this community process where if anyone saw someone coming then they would organize to defend themselves. So, so he talks about that. But what you get in that, in that little brief introduction, is um, you see the, the intricacies of life in Western Africa, where he's from. You see the pre-existence of another kind of slavery, because it is a very different kind of slavery. And, and part of what you get from his journey when he leaves, he's kidnapped, and he's put in one of these big, horrible bags. And then he's sold from person to person. He is enslaved by several African households before he's sold to the Europeans. And initially, he has a situation very similar to what he had in his own place, where he's certainly not on the same level as the people who own him, but he's treated like a human being. You know, he gets reasonable amounts of food, reasonable accommodation, and so on. You know, he's not beat. Then when he is sold to the Europeans, he gets this rude awakening. Um, and he's convinced by their behavior that they're going to eat him um, because he has never in his life encountered anything quite so horrendous as what he is encountering on this slave ship. All right. So what's interesting there, if we're getting into kind of the intricacies of what is the nature of freedom? What does it mean to be human? Reading those texts together, Locke's text and Equiano's text, gets us into this really in-depth, you know, kind of philosophical discussion about those terms. And then to add something else interesting to it, um, if you look at Locke's background, he served as secretary to the Earl of Shaftesbury, who had um, extensive colonial interest in the Americas. And so Locke was his personal secretary and got all of the correspondence coming from the Americas with in-depth treatment of what was happening to Native Americans, what was happening to Africans. Um, and he also made some investments in those overseas prospects, right? So at the same time that Locke is writing this whole, you know, kind of extensive philosophical discussion of, you know, the nature of freedom and, you know, how there's really almost no justification for enslavement or for 
taking away lands of people that you um, claim to have conquered. At the same time, he's engaging in this extensive international correspondence um, of the colonization of the Americas, right? Um, you know, so it brings up these contradictions. And how do we deal with those contradictions? I don't think we deal with them in a way that we say, oh, he's just a hypocrite. You know, let's just forget him. I think it's a lot more complicated because when we start thinking about ourselves and how we are also enmeshed in various kinds of social, economic, and political webs, that it can be difficult to extricate ourselves from, that kind of contradiction is an opportunity to have a larger discussion about ourselves as well. You know, maybe trying to make sense of what's going on in Locke's mind, but also trying to make sense of what's going on in our own souls when we meet contradictions between something that we believe in and then, you know, a practice that doesn't meet with that, but we feel like we're, we still need to be part of it. So I guess that's kind of a long answer, but it really allows you to get into these much deeper questions. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, if you are doing history, um, so you know, a lot of the work that I do is historical, and it's a, this particular subset of sociology called comparative historical sociology, where we look at a particular phenomenon over different slices of time to try to understand that phenomenon very well. There is a very um, famous sociologist who has written, um, Orlando Patterson, he's at Harvard, and he's written um, a book all about this, slavery and social death. And he goes from ancient Greek and ancient Rome up into the present um, to look at the issue of slavery and freedom. And he compares all these different forms of slavery and looks at the essence of slavery um, and the essence of freedom. And part of what you get in that kind of analysis is again, to look at you know, what is the nature of slavery, but also to look, to put the United States into comparative perspective, right? Um, so what Equiano was dealing with, the slave system that he came out of in West Africa was a whole different animal than what was going on here in the United States, right? That doesn't mean that, oh yeah, slavery in some cases is great. <laughs> Certainly that's not the argument. But to better understand our own circumstance in American history, um, it is helpful to have that kind of historical consciousness. That's interesting. Um, and thinking about them as, I guess when you're putting them in conversation, in a way you're creating a new conversation. You're, you're still fostering this, this great conversation, but between two authors that probably haven't been put in conversation together before, Another piece of that, just another example, is a, a novel I read this summer from Maxwell Phillip, uh, a great classically educated Caribbean man called Emmanuel Apodoca. And it's the story of this classically educated man who turns to piracy. So he's a pirate. He's kind of a waxing philosophical pirate who has a white plantation owning father and a black mother. And he kind of he goes in justice. He goes to seeking justice from his father. And so it's really kind of like um, treasure Island swashbuckling pirate story with all these really deep philosophical questions about identity, about colony, about race and about slavery. And, you know, I could easily see putting that novel as being an, in conversation with these other two texts. So I guess, I mean, here's my question. Um, 
does a chronological kind of great books approach, does that unnecessarily racialize a curriculum or, or make it look like a, a curriculum's unnecessarily all white or, or racialized in a way that maybe a approaching it as a great con a great questions curriculum wouldn't and i know a lot of our schools and schools that i taught at we we had a kind of chronological sequence of great books and you you rarely got in some of those sequences to the 18th 19th 20th century because we spent so much time reading ancients and, and medievals and and renaissance books so do you think it would help if if we shifted a little bit our, our our language here and instead of talking about a great kind of a great books curriculum we talked about it it's a great conversation or a great questions approach i mean does that free us up a little bit to introduce some of these contemporary authors do you think so i i think it can um i could still see the concern of we're not going to be able to read all the great books we want to read if we do it this way <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, I don't think it, it it totally gets rid of that concern. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of ways to do it. Um, I think, you know, if one is really wedded to the chronological approach, and again, this comes back to what is our ultimate aim in doing it. So if the ultimate aim is to get through all of the ancients and the medievals, you know, and a little bit into the modern period, and you really want to do full justice, you really want to focus on that. Um, and that is perhaps more important than kind of getting at the core of the kind of core concepts and ideas as they are incarnated in multiple time periods, then that would be an argument to just focus on a few time periods just to get that kind of sub right. substantive time period down. But if we are concerned, if we're maybe a little more concerned about these larger questions and concepts of justice and freedom and so on, then again, just because um, the making of the Western world has been so caught up as well with the, um, the very kind of questionable treatment of large numbers of people and lands with Native Americans and Africans and African Americans. Mm -hmm. It seems rather difficult to me to leave all of those voices and experiences out if we are interested in these larger issues of justice, freedom, and so on. Um, so I could imagine a couple different ways of doing it. One, largely chronological, but perhaps um, punctuated by um, different kinds of voices that kind of intervene periodically into the conversation. So in other words, you've got it really, the logic is chronological, but um, you decide that, well, we've been talking about, you know, the issue of slavery and freedom, say um, Aristotle's politics, where he has his discussion in his defense of um, slavery and he, he makes reference to the fact that there are these other strange people out there who, you know, who think that slavery is always wrong, you know, but he feels that there are people who are natural slaves, right? So he's, he's got his argument on that. Um, and so then maybe you bring in, um, so you don't fully leave the chronology of what you're doing in covering mm -hmm. all of the ancients, but you bring in an interlocutor to kind of um, 
have the conversation with Aristotle that we don't see in his own work. I don't know if that makes sense. So, no, I think that's great. I think that's great. So, a, like a contemporary interlocutor who raises the questions that then we we allow that contemporary interlocutor to put to to Aristotle. What? And it, yeah, right. And it. So, what's the value of that? Is the value of that just helping our students engage a contemporary author, you know, or a person from one of the, you know, uh, a person of color, if you will, that they won't otherwise see? I mean, there's probably some value. Well, for me, or, yeah, for me, the primary value is not, well, we just need a diverse voice, so that's why we're going to bring one sure. in. No. You know, for me, the value is the actual philosophical question. Are there natural slaves? Right. <laughs> you know, like... Our, you know, Aristotle kind of, he just, he does this drive by on the issue. Like he doesn't go into it in depth, but mm -hmm. he alludes to the fact that there are these other people out there who think that there are not any kind of natural slaves whatsoever. Um, we don't get treated to a full treatment of it. So bringing in another voice who's dealt with it in a, in a very personal way, who can say, you know, we can look and we can say, hey, um, you know, we don't get a full treatment of this here. Let's bring this person in um, because our focus is that concept and we're trying to get at the essence of freedom and what it means to be human. So again, that's why I say, what's the essence of what we're trying to get at? Is it mainly to cover these great books, in which case keep the chronology at all cost, right? Or is, is it, yes, partly we want them to have the breadth so it is important to cover the time period well and with integrity, but ultimately we want our students to be able to wrestle with these deeper ideas and questions. So I think, again, it's a very slight, it's like changing the angle of something in the light. You know, it's, it's not a complete difference, but for me, I'm always captivated by the questions and the concepts like, okay, Aristotle, so you say that there are natural slaves, but what does that really mean? You know, that, that also, that he also has this sense that natural slaves would be satisfied, right? Like they, they wouldn't think of not being slaves. So, so if they're around somewhere, that must be what they're like. But then it makes me question, then I have this other question. Okay, so let's say someone is born into a society where people are enslaved routinely, which has been much of human history. And say they're satisfied with their lot. Let's just say we, we could find these people then I'd have an additional question. So to what extent are they natural slaves because they're inherently that way? And to what extent is that coming from the way that they have been formed in their society to be satisfied with that situation? Because then we start to get into issues again of, you know, kind of, of human nature and where do our desires come from? So in other words, if I were satisfied being in a particular state, is that because I was born inherently fitted to that state? Is it because I have been formed in the society to, to desire that? And so again, we get into these larger philosophical questions of where do our desires come from? And I think that's also part of what we could ask ourselves today. What is it that I truly desire what, and why? Where does that come from? What are, are there underlying assumptions and practices in my society that have shaped me to want that and to be satisfied with that? Or is there something inherent, you know, in me or inherent in human nature? So, again, um, 
for me, it's those larger questions. And I think that's right. And I think one of the reasons we turn to the great books is that they help us articulate these questions and answer them with great depth and beauty. So that's why we go to them sometimes in the first place, because not just because they're antiquarian, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of books written over time that we've never heard of because they they didn't do this. They didn't help us ask these questions with depth and beauty in the way some of these other texts do. So I, I think even the idea of having great books starts with the idea of having great questions and these great ideas that we want to explore. And I, and I think I think you're right. I think shifting that would open up some of our curricula um, to, uh, yeah, to, to, to introducing some of these other, these other texts and these other voices. Um, yeah, I now, just, I want to be very, yeah. sorry. No, go ahead. I just want to be very careful about the idea of diversity for diversity's sake, um, right. because that's really not my issue. <laughs> um, but it just happens to be the case that it seems to take a diversity of perspectives to get at these questions. You know, if you see what I mean, that yeah. um, it's because once you start getting into diversity for diversity's sakes, then it's just, okay, I'll pluck this one from here and I'll pluck that one from there. And, you know, I've got diversity, you know, but that's right. not the point. The point is what are our ultimate aims? And right. it often does take different perspectives to get at those aims. And well, and I think that's where I'm thinking. So there, are, there are some contemporary voices and contemporary experiences that that simply weren't there in the classical tradition or the medieval tradition, and we need some of those contemporary voices to help us see the breadth of these these questions and some of these answers. Right? I mean, that's that's what I'm thinking here. That that we actually need for this great conversation to to be as capacious as it could be to introduce some of these um, more contemporary voices and, and contemporary authors and, and, and thoughts. So. Um, Let's can we open it up to people? I, I know that we've been um, Angel and I've been chatting for a little while here. Somebody in the I'm just going to answer a question that somebody asked. They asked, "What's the name of the um, the swashbuckling pirate novel?" It's uh, the author is Maxwell Philip, and the title is called Emmanuel Apodoca, and it's a really wonderful read. If you have junior high boys who like uh, Treasure Island. This is a fantastic thing to put in their hands. Or, I mean, I could easily see it being part of a curriculum um, to raise some of these some of these questions. But let's let's do open it up and see if other people have comments or, or, or questions. Yes. Just so you all know, I'm in the process of promoting everyone to panelists, which will enable them to ask their own questions and we will be able to see them. It's going to take me a minute to do that, but we can certainly go ahead with the questions. So what questions do you all have for Angel and Brian? Very interesting conversation. Angel, there's a question there uh, addressed to you from Brett Edwards. Can you provide a list of black intellectuals that you believe should be part of the great conversation? How would you answer that? Um Sure. I mean, I can just give you a quick dash off. <laughs> but um, I will also say before the end of this, I will send you a link to my website where I have an opportunity for people who are interested in forming their own groups on the Black intellectual tradition and the Great Conversation. And it's got um, a seminar outline for 10 different sessions. 
um, where it's organized thematically and puts these different writers into conversation with each other. So you would have access to the course outline. Um, there, I have um, lectures that go with each of those that will be uploaded that you have access to. Um, you would just have to organize your own group and use the materials. Um, and that is all free of charge. So if, if someone can just remind me before the end of this, I'll put that link in the chat for people who are interested. And then you can get kind of my pre-considered list right there. But just for right now, I'd say um, certainly Phyllis Wheatley, W.E.B. Du Bois, Frederick Douglass, um, Anna Julia Cooper, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, let's see, Tony Morrison. Tony Morrison, William Sanders Scarborough is one of my absolute favorites. Um, Tony Morrison, Ralph Ellison. I mean, I think Ralph Ellison wrote one of the great, we always talk about when's the next great American novel. And I kind of think Ralph Ellison almost wrote it in The Invisible Man, which dialogues with, you know, Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky and a little bit of the Odyssey all the way through it. And it's a remarkable okay. piece of work. Yes, yes, um, yes. So, um, in the, this same vein, do you guys have Hispanic voices that would also be suggestions? So that is a harder question for me, because as I said, my focus has really been on the black intellectual tradition. Um, I have here and there tried to look, but I can, I have to confess that I have not spent lots and lots of time. I mean, there, there are many great, um, Latin American authors, um, you know, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, right? Um, Borges, um, who else? So many of the classics that you would think they're from Latin American authors, but I have not put together, you know, a thought through list of people. Yeah, I have to confess this same thing. Most of my work here has been in the black intellectual tradition and black classicism. Um, but I think one thing that's interesting, all the, all the people that we just mentioned there, um, Phyllis Wheatley, Ralph Allison, uh, Frederick Douglass, they're all in this same tradition. I mean, it's interesting to read their stuff, I find, because you see them, you see evidence of this, this grand tradition and this grand conversation in their writing. So, so they're, they're engaging in this just from the 18th, 19th, 20th century. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we read, a lot of us read C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, in our, in our curricula, you know, they're 20th century authors. And so it shouldn't be a big stretch to find other authors who have a, have a perspective or a take on thing that we also need um, and see them all as part of this grand conversation, this grand tradition. Um, I, uh, I was particularly interested, Angel, in your discussion about not pursuing diversity for diversity's sake. And there's a question in the chat that I thought was really good. Can you give us a, a good working definition of diversity that we could use with parents so as not to mislead what we're really after? Uh, that's that's an interesting one. Um, <laughs> and I think this is where language begins to fail us sometimes because terms get... Um, terms begin to have certain associations that it's very difficult to shake. At this point in time where we are, um, just the word diversity conjures up a whole series of political and cultural associations and assumptions 
that I'm sorry to say, make it a word that may not be the best for what you're trying to convey. Um, I guess the way that I think about it, and I don't know if I have a pithy definition necessarily, but the way that I think about it is that our focus is on pursuing the true good and beautiful and wrestling with the great questions of humanity. And in order to do that well, we need people coming from different perspectives on those same questions. And I think that's really the best I can say at this point, because that's what I really think. Um, again, the word diversity, I'm coming from the university world. So I, you know, I'm just saying there are so many assumptions there um, and you lose a lot of people and it doesn't really make sense because it's not like there's anything wrong with the word and there's nothing wrong with diversity, but the way it's been used and the way it's been pursued is not necessarily conducive to what, what you're trying to do. And so I would hate for that word to be a stumbling block to what you're actually trying to do. Brian, I don't know um, what you would say to that. Yeah, I would, I would say very something very similar. And there are a number of words that maybe I could have used 30 years ago that I don't use now because they've taken on these cultural and political accretions that make them, I just have to do so many disclaimers if I use the word that I just find, unfortunately, okay, that's not a word I can really use to communicate. And what we want to do is, is communicate to people in our time. So, I mean, I, I would take a very similar approach. And, you know, rather than say we have a diverse curriculum, I would, I would kind of show it. I would say, you know, what we care about are these great enduring human questions. What we care about are the true, the good, the beautiful, and the holy. And anybody who articulates these in, in beautiful and deep ways. And because there are contemporary authors articulating these ideas in deep and beautiful ways, why wouldn't we read them? And our other ancient authors doing the same thing and medieval authors and Renaissance authors doing the same kind of thing. And what we want to do is facilitate this question between this, you know, this one space of time, this whole space of time between authors who are contemplating these things in deep and beautiful ways. So, you know, and then, and it's kind of show that. So, I mean, that's, that's a long winded answer, but I find that, you know, maybe people don't want that, but that's what they need. Um, a kind of, you know, do you have a, do you have a diverse curriculum? Well, let's, let's stop. And I mean, it's like Jesus, you know, when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And he said, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? He didn't answer the question directly. He starts this long story uh, and gets around to it at the end. So I think that I would take a very similar approach and uh, for very similar reasons. Um, but finding places in a great questions or a great ideas curriculum for authors across the spectrum, across the tradition, for just the reasons that Angel has articulated. Right. We you had another website, though, but I mean, you can't put a pithy, it's not a, you know, that's not a, a seven word uh, definition for your website, <laughs> I'm afraid. We had another question pop up in the chat. And before I ask it, I'll just remind everyone, um, you're welcome to just ask your question. You don't have to send it in the chat, but if you feel more comfortable doing that, of course, that's fine. Um, for our presenters, the question is, do you have some suggestions about children's texts, particularly, that might offer this diversity of perspective that would allow us as educators to speak these ideas into our children and allow them to see themselves in these texts? And this particular person is asking for elementary level. 
Yeah, Angel, do you want to take that and, and, and mention your work with Nyansa and what you've done there? Because I think that that might help get at this. Sure. Um, so the first thing I'll say is that I've just started, because I keep getting this question. So um, I've just started putting together such a list. And it's based mainly on my years um, homeschooling my own children, where I've just been very conscious to kind of weave in these different voices and different texts. Uh, so I have that, um, but, you know, I didn't start it with an eye toward having an authoritative list of children's books or anything like that. So it's kind of like the things that Angel thought were good to read. Um, but I am actually going to be using some of my college students to augment that list and to do some more research and, you know, come up with something more comprehensive. Um, so if you want the little list I have now um, and you write to me, I'd be more than happy to send the little list I have so far. But I will say a disclaimer, you know, it, it was it's just my little old list for me in my house right now. However, um, I have been doing some work um, in my organization, Yansa Classical Community, where we are creating classical curricula for um, that is meant specifically to be um, inviting to people from many different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And so we have, um, we're, we put together 20 weeks of material that's organized around the study of Greek mythology. And then we're planning to do um, two to three more um, 20 week sets of curricula on other pieces of literature like the Odyssey, the Iliad, and so on. So what we have now with Greek mythology, I have commissioned um, very talented artists who have created images of Greek gods and goddesses that come from all sorts of different backgrounds. That they're, so they're pictured in very different ways. And the reason I do that is because these are imaginary, right? Now, if we were talking about Bible stories, you know, then I'm going to say, well, they're, if they were coming from the Middle East, then we want them to look Middle Eastern, right? But since we have, I think, some room in the imagination with the Greek gods and goddesses, um, they're portrayed in all different kinds of ways with all different kinds of, of skin colors and features and hair and so on. Um, so uh, we have put those together and they're very exciting. Um, it's really a lot of fun. Our kids have responded very well to them. And the curriculum is organized around the virtues. Um, so we, for each of the 20 weeks, it's a different virtue that they're focusing on, a different Greek god or goddess. We have our own original stories um, of the, the Greek myths. And then each of those Greek myths is paired with two Bible stories on the same theme. And then that is paired with um, biographies of historical persons who actually lived, who embodied those virtues. And those historical persons, again, are from many different backgrounds, many different places. So that's how we do it in with Nyansa, with our curriculum. And that has generally, we have used it for after school programming. Um, I think it could easily be used for homeschooling, after school, you know, kind of like a, a Saturday school supplemental type thing. So that's what we're doing um, at Nyansa. And then, like I said, I'll be working to augment the, the list of children's books. Um, for instance, there is something called The Princess Diaries. And this is a great set. And it's got, it's got plenty of, of European um, women in it, but they're basically female leaders. And I would say, so these are probably not 
early elementary. Um, they might work for, depending on the reading level of the child, maybe like fifth grade and up if they're reading it on their own. But if you're reading it to them, it could be just about any age. So you've got Cleopatra, you've got, um, okay, what is her name? It will come back to me, but she is a warrior princess um, from Southern Africa. Um, they've got Asian women. They have Anna Kaona, who was a native woman from what is now Haiti. Uh, so they, they are these kind of historical biographies of these female leaders. And they're just wonderful because they, they do the historical research, um, but then they present it in a really compelling way. And it includes women of color as well as many European women. Um, so you kind of the gamut. Can I ask you a question? Somebody says you might mean, is it the Royal Diaries? Yes, the series? Royal Diaries. Thank you, Lacey. Thank you. I would have had you all on a bad goose chase trying to find that. Thank you. The Royal Diaries. There you go. Uh, Let me just ask really question. quick. Oh, oh, oh yeah. I, I was just going to say we're out of time, oh. um, but I'm wondering, we, we've got a quick question here. The, the resource that you just talked about, Angel, could you spell that for us in the chat so that we all yeah. know how to look that up? And then um, I'm assuming that both of you would be open to, to questions from panelists outside of this time. Uh, right. Is that is that the case? Absolutely. And I'm Great. going to put my um, email in there right now as well. Okay, super. Um, of course, this session has been recorded. And so if we need to, to go back at any point, or if you have someone that wasn't able to participate today that would like to, to view what uh, was said here, you can do that. Uh, this has been a really enriching conversation. So thank you both very much. Great. Thanks, Tag. And thank you to Matt Post and University of Dallas. Thanks, Angel. Yes, See you. Thank you all. Bye. -bye.